was down the bay just before I came here. I was sitting there thinking as I was sitting in a deck chair at the bay. And I left my family down there. I was like, I wonder how many people are going to come to church this evening. It's a good turnout. Well done. Um, I'm starting a, a, a mini-series for the next couple of weeks. I want to look at the, the subject of living generous lives. One of our values as a church is outrageous generosity. And often when people think about the word generosity, they think about it being financial. But that's much too narrow. I wanted to talk far more expansively about generosity this evening. And I've had some fun with this talk. Fun might not be the right word, actually. So I was walking in the Gower yesterday and uh, walked Worm's Head. I don't know whether any of you have done that, but it's an absolutely stunning walk. And I got, <laughs> the family were miles ahead and I got left behind somewhere. And suddenly the Lord spoke to me and he said, you've prepared the wrong passage for tomorrow. I was like, oh, no. I'd actually finished my talk on the Friday, which was brilliant, very excited, bank holiday weekend and all of that, and the Lord said, wrong passage, Sonny Jim. And so for the next two hours, me and the Lord had a wrestle. And I was like, but I'm done. And he said, no, start again. And yeah, just, it's just interesting. He just really spoke, spoke clearly to me and said, this is what I want you to speak on. Same, same subject, but different passage. And so, do you know what? When the Lord does that, we've got a choice to disobey or press in and go, actually, Lord, what is it that you want to say? And I think the Lord wants to do something extraordinary tonight. And so I'm full of faith, so I hope you are as well. But so... Just the starting point, really, of generosity is that God is generous. And here's what we read in Romans. In Romans 8, verse 32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And then even more famously in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So you, you go back and you're like, well, God was generous in creation in giving human beings the earth and he's in, generous in caring for the earth and he was generous in giving us human beings each other so that we wouldn't be lonely. And he was so generous, incredibly generous in giving us his son, Jesus Christ. He's, give, he's generous in giving eternal life to every person who trusts in Jesus. He's generous in answering our prayers. He's generous in giving us his presence when we're hurt or whatever situation we come in, he is so generous and he loves to meet us exactly where we're at. So if there's one quality of God that stands out, it's that, that God is a generous God. So what is generosity? The word generosity had a really interesting origin and it came from an old Latin word, generosus, which means of noble birth. Now, when you think about these two things, generosity and nobility, generally you don't put them together, do you? I don't, anyway. But to say somebody was generous in the Middle Ages was to say that this person belonged to nobility. And then in the 17th century, there began to be a shift in the word generous. It didn't simply refer to someone's literal family heritage, part of the nobility. But more and more, generosity referred to nobility of spirit, and so generosity was to be called to a higher state, a higher standard. And I think that generosity is a learned habit. 
being generous isn't just something that's kind of haphazard or we walk past and we're like, oh, I feel so moved to be generous. That does absolutely happen. But over time, I believe that we can develop habits in which we're open-handed with our time, with our money, our possessions, our compliments, our encouragement, our emotional availability and our service. It's an interesting concept to think about to be generous with our emotional availability. Do you know what? It's so easy to be emotionally shut down with other people. You can be in a room full of people and be completely emotionally shut down. And so generosity really is this idea of being open-handed. And so I wanted to start this evening, and I guess this little mini part series, by thinking about this. The most powerful analogy that I've ever heard about generosity is the picture of being completely open-handed. Because what happens is, when we are open-handed, the Lord can pour into us his gifts and all all that he wants to. And then he gives and he takes away, and blessed be his name. What generally happens in the world, and so often happens with Christians as well, is that we live from a posture of closed-fistedness instead. Now, the thing about closed-fistedness is what happens is we get something and we grab it and we hold on to it and we hold our hands tight. What that means is it can't be taken from us. And then we try and spend our lives holding on to things. So the image is this. That's what happens. It's the difference between being an owner and a steward. An owner is somebody that grasps hold of things. A steward is somebody who says, everything is from the Lord. Everything comes from above. He has blessed me mightily. Therefore, I will give open-handedly. So to move this analogy a bit further, I want you to sit and think for a moment about what posture you're in. And there's different things all the way to this. Do you know what? I am completely open-handed with the gifts and the talents that the Lord has given me to kind of the claw fist do you know what I mean? I'm a little bit open-handed with the things, but there's, there's parts that he can't have and then the claw a bit further all the way through to actually, do you know what? I am completely shut down. You've given me, I'm going to hold on to it. And so just think for a moment, where are you in that picture? If you're there, come and help me. Um, you, can, <laughs> you can come and talk. But So because we're made in God's image, we human beings are designed to be generous. And we don't do well when we're ungenerous. Here's what it says in Proverbs 11, 24 to 25 in the message version of the Bible. And I think this is so profound. It says this, the world of the generous gets larger and larger and the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. The one who blesses others is abundantly blessed. The world of the generous gets larger and larger and the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. And I think that is so true. It's so true. Those who help others are helped. It's like the Grinch's heart in the Grinch that stole Christmas. His heart is two sizes too small. And what happens is ungenerous people shrink their own hearts and they shrink their own worlds. It's really interesting. I was, I was having a chat with um, guy called David Pike, he preaches occasionally and he came up to me after the morning service and he said, it's really fascinating you're talking about generosity. We had somebody in our last small group who was so extravagantly generous and actually she, she moved to move overseas back to another country and he said, we didn't realise how generous she was until she was gone. But she changed the atmosphere of that group because of her generosity. 
And actually, she came to see us and she just left her. And he's like, she is not a rich person. She is not a loaded person. But she, and she gave us a little 20 pound meal voucher the last time we saw her and said, go out to Wagamama's and go and have some food. Generosity changes atmospheres. It changes things. We can change the environment. So if generosity is so good, then why are we so bad at it? And certainly one of the reasons is that we're afraid to be generous. We're afraid to do this. We're afraid to do this because of what happens if somebody takes something away from us that we wanted and that we're clinging on to. We're afraid to give of our time, our energy, our money. We're afraid to make ourselves available to others. We're afraid of being vulnerable. So what do we do? Instead, we become self-protective and we hunker down and we hoard and we cocoon and we close in on ourselves. And as Proverbs says, what happens when we do that is we get smaller and smaller and smaller. And the result of that, according to researchers, is we become even more anxious about the future. The more we hold on to things, the more anxious we become. When we are ungenerous, when we don't open our hands, we end up clinging not just to our stuff, but to our anxieties as well. Jesus knew this one well. He said, if you want to get free of anxiety or fear regarding the future, what do you need to do? Give. Give. Give away. If you're in a prison of fear regarding what's going to become of you or your family, the worst thing that you can do is hunker down, become less available to others, and give less. The opposite is true. And you see this so often in relationships. When people are going through a hard time, and I don't mean kind of... um, I mean, relationships within community, when people are struggling in community, what happens is when they become protective they begin to isolate themselves. They move out of community, which is the thing that they most needed to do was push into community. It's exactly the same. It's like you needed to push into community. You isolated yourself. So because God is generous, he's created, we've been created to be generous. We're hardwired to be generous. We flourish when we're generous. Those who help others are helped. Generosity is like a boomerang and we throw it and we give and it comes back to us. Now, there's a spiritual principle in here because what I'm not advocating is prosperity gospel. And by that, it's like, if you give all your money to something, then God will give you even more money back. That's kind of the the principle. I don't believe in that. But I do think there is a spiritual principle of giving, which is if you give, then you will see blessing. It might not be financial. It might not always come back in the same way. It might come back elsewhere, but actually you'll be so much less anxious So much less anxiety in your life as you learn to give. So the passage that I want to look at is actually the Good Samaritan. So we're going to be in Luke 10 today, verses 25 to 37. So if you've got a Bible, just grab it. If not, it's just going to come up on the screens behind me. It says this, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. 
But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. A familiar passage for many of you. But this is a parable. Before, before we get to the parable, there's an interaction between Jesus and what might be known as a law expert. And this, he would have, he's like a religious scholar. And this guy asks a question, and here's why he asked the question. He says he stood up to test Jesus and to trap him. I want to tell you right now, that is a very bad idea. If Jesus was to walk in here this evening and be in front of you, I would not recommend trying to trap him. It is a bad idea. Why would he want to do it? Well, you see, Jesus is always welcoming people who obviously don't measure up to the law, people who haven't got it all together, people like you and me. We haven't got it all together. So the religious scholar, he had some suspicion and he wants to expose Jesus as somebody who doesn't really respect the law of God. And so he asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved or accepted by God? And he expects Jesus to say something like, oh, it doesn't really matter how you live. God accepts everyone. Just go to him and God will just accept you and love you. And he expects Jesus to say that and trap him. But Jesus comes straight back at the guy. And he comes back with a question and says, well, tell me what's in the law. How do you read it? It's always a great way when somebody's asking you a ridiculously difficult question to ask them a question. I've had that many times. James, what do you think biblically about this? I haven't got a Scooby. What do you think? But there are only two ways to answer a question like this, to ask a law expert what's in the law. You either get out and read all 700 things that it says about it, rules, or you give a summary. We're going to go, so Jesus went for the summary. But there's clearly what Jesus is saying when he says, well, how do you read it? Which is a, is a way of saying, give me a summary of this. What does the law require, basically? And of course, he gets the summary Jesus probably expected because this was actually typical. The guy didn't think this up on the spot. We know at the time, law experts had studied the moral law of God and had come up with these basic two principles and said, you can summarize everything in the law of God on these two lines. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, just think about this for a second because it's critical to understanding what Jesus is doing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart, soul, strength and mind. What does that mean? I think sometimes we become so familiar with verses that we don't even stop to think what it actually means. And there's a guy called Archbishop William Temple once put it this way. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. What he's saying is that if you're standing on a corner for hour, hours for some reason and you're waiting and you literally have nothing to read, you've got nothing to do and you've got nothing to listen to, when your mind is completely unfettered and it's not forced to think of anything, where does it go naturally? Where does it go? Where does it go instinctively? 
Where does it love to dwell? Is it, is it God? What he's done? His generosity? Whatever that something is, Archbishop Tensel says, that's your real religion. That's your real God. That's your ultimate concern. That's your faith. Wherever your mind goes tells you what you really care about. That is why solitude is so fascinating. I don't know whether you've ever had a day. How many of you have done a silent retreat over the last six months? Go on, put your hands up. Five of us. We absolutely struggle with solitude in our society. If you really want to know what the Lord's saying about something, try solitude. Try going away for a day without any distraction and being like, okay, Lord, it's just you and me. It's just the two of us. You're going to have to speak because it's going to be a long day. But it's such an amazing thing to do. Therefore, the first test of the law is this, love God. And this is what he's saying when love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, soul, strength and mind. Love God so much that he dominates your solitude. Love God so much that you're content in any circumstance because you always have what you most want. That's the first rule. There's another one to go. The second one is love your neighbour as yourself. And what does that mean? Well, think about it. Meet the needs of your neighbour with all the force and with all the joy and with all the speed and with all the power with which you meet your own. I'm going to say that again. What does it mean to love your neighbour? It means to meet the needs of your neighbour with all the force, with all the joy, with all the speed and with all the power with which you meet your own needs. Be as happy for them when their needs are met as you would be for your own because you've put happiness inside their happiness. So what makes you happy is what makes them happy. Okay, suddenly you read those two verses like that. What happens in that moment? You raise the bar. (laughs) Suddenly to this religious leader, this religious expert who's sitting there going, do you know what? It's about... He probably felt quite smug, like he was doing quite a good job. It's like, well, there's these 700 things and I can kind of tick them off. And then Jesus in the moment is like, I am gonna raise the bar massively on you. This is what it looks like to love God. And why does he do this? Because he's actually proving to them that they can't do it. He's like, I'm gonna raise the bar so high that you realise that you can never live up to this standard and that you need to understand what extravagant grace is. You need the grace of God. The troubling aspect for the teacher of the law in the parable that Jesus tells is that the Samaritan is saving the Israelite or the Jew. Now, the Samaritan and the Israelites were enemies. So the religious people have passed by on the other side. The people that should have stopped and helped haven't, the Levite and the priest. They should have stopped, but they didn't. And they've left the man to die. Why? Because they've lost their heart for people. In the midst of their religion and rules, they have forgotten that God's heart is for people, that his heart is for the lost and the destitute and the broken, those that can't look after themselves, those from a different race and country. That's what God cares about. So what's happening in this moment is Jesus, so this this religious expert dares to challenge Jesus and Jesus turns it back on him and he gets right in his face and he says, this is what it looks like to love God. He's saying, you can try and catch me out, but I'm going to mess with your mind and soul. I'm going to raise the bar on the law of God to make you realise that you can never reach that level and you are desperately in need of God's extravagant grace. 
because in your rules, you have forgotten the heart. This Samaritan is modeling beautifully the way that Jesus rescues us as well. He picks us up in our utter brokenness and he loves us into fullness again. That's a picture of what happens when we get into a relationship with Jesus, is that he picks us from wherever we're at and he says, I am gonna love you back into wholeness and fullness. That's what he does. This parable is so multi-layered. If Jesus had turned it on its head, it wouldn't have worked. The Samaritan had to rescue the Israelite. Generosity is found in God's heart. And it's only when we become aware of God's mercy on us that we can begin to operate in kingdom generosity. It's only when we begin to understand the depths of the love of God that suddenly we can begin to respond in a way that loves those around us. We first have to understand how much he loves us. That generosity is found in him and it breaks us open. It changes everything. When the, the love of God fills our heart and our soul, it begins to change us from the inside out. And then suddenly the hands that have been shut begin to open. It's like, Lord, it's all yours. It's all yours. I'm but a steward of everything that you give me. It's yours. It's to be used for your kingdom. It's to be used for your purposes. It's all yours. I'm yours. I've been, I've mentioned it a, a few weeks ago, but I've been having a really profound time with a spiritual director over the last couple of months. And if you wanted to know what spiritual direction is, sometimes people are like, what, what is spiritual direction? And it's, if somebody was to fall down a well, what a coach would do is they would say to you, how are you going to get out of the well? What a spiritual director would say is, what is Jesus doing in the well? They are not necessarily there to rescue you from the situation. What they are there to do is to make you realise is that Jesus is in all things. Is that Jesus is in every situation and that you just have to see what he's doing. And so you begin to ask a different set of questions about life. It's deeply profound. Suddenly in the midst of pain, you're like, Jesus, where are you in this picture? Where are you? And you begin to be able to see Jesus and you're like, oh, that's what you're doing. Yes, I don't necessarily have all the answers to this, but I can see you in it. I know that you're with me. I can see you in this moment. And I've been, I've been uh, learning, well, I, I know the Jesus prayer already, but I've been using something called the Jesus prayer. And, and I talked about this idea of being open-handed, but one of the things that I've been doing is in the mornings, you just get up with the Lord and that you start, it's something called palms down, palms up, and that you start with your palms down while you just give the Lord your stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like the way everything on your mind, you just sit there. And then what happens is when you begin to experience the presence of the Lord, you turn your hands up. It's almost like a visible representation of the Lord pouring himself in. And you say, Lord, pour yourself in. And at the same time, there's this prayer, the Jesus prayer, and it just says this, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do you know what's so profound about having done that for the last couple of weeks is that you just suddenly realise how awesome God is. You go back and you're like, oh God, it's all you. You're amazing. You are so generous to me. Everything that I have in my life is yours. You begin to look at the world differently. It's the difference between an owner and a steward. It begins to change things. The way that the Samaritan looks 
after the Israelite in this parable is so incredibly extravagant. And I want to sit on that. We tend to limit the how much or how far will we go. So we have a tendency to say, when we're talking about this idea of generosity, well, look, if I was doing well, maybe I could be generous, but I can't even, I haven't got enough for myself. I can't afford to help people like that. I can't afford to do it. And Jesus deliberately, even though he's making the story up, it's a parable, puts the story on a stretch of road that everybody knew about. He didn't just say, on the road, robbers got them. He put them on a particularly dangerous stretch of road between Jerusalem and Jericho, lots of hills, lots of cave. And there's a pass on that road literally called the Pass of Blood. The Pass of Blood. Because so many people got jumped and robbed and killed that they called it the Pass of Blood. So what happens is, that likely the guy's been hurt at the pass of blood and he's dying. And along comes this priest and along comes the Levite. But why do they pass by on the other side? Because they're smart. Because if you see somebody who's not dead yet, what does that mean? It probably means that the robbers are right nearby. To stop would be fatal, perhaps. So when the Samaritan stops, he's risking Everything, absolutely everything. I think it's so easy for us to read the story of the priest and the Levite and go, man, what idiots. And on the one hand, that's true, but we can be very judgmental about what's going on. This was an incredibly dangerous situation. When the Samaritan stops, he is risking everything. It's an incredible sacrifice. And of course, he opens up his wallet and he doesn't just say, here's two denarii, but he says, I will pay for any amount of time it takes for this man to get better. Jesus is giving this picture of outrageous generosity. So the, just to go back, the Samaritan puts himself in harm's way. He tended for him there and then. He got him to self-keeping and he paid for him in full. I think that if we're not careful as Christians, we could become really, really stingy. I'm just putting it out there. I think we can get really stingy about our time, our energy, our money, all of the things that I've talked about. We can just be stingy people. Generous people are interruptible. Generous people are interruptible. The question constantly is, Lord, what are the good works that you've prepared beforehand for me to do? What are those good works? And sometimes the good work which God has prepared beforehand is really inconvenient and feels like a complete waste of time. That's how it often feels. If you like to be highly productive all of the time, if you're one of those people who tries to squeeze production out of every minute, it is hard to do activities that don't feel very productive. Being generous is often inconvenient and can feel like a waste of time. Miroslav Volv, in his book titled Free of Charge, Giving and forgiving in a culture stripped of grace writes this, and I think this is so profound. I've used it once before, but it just says this. Every word and every deed, every thought and every gesture, even the simple act of paying attention can be a gift and therefore an echo of God's life in us. You sit on your sofa, beer or soda in your hand and junk food by your side, watching TV for hours. That's ordinary. You work around the clock, not because you have to feed your family, but for no other reason than to park a better car in your garage than your neighbours have. That's ordinary. You get up from the couch to pray with your kids, or you give time and energy to help educate a prisoner, or to lend an ear to an elderly person. That's extraordinary. 
Why? Because you're giving. Every gift breaks the barrier between the sacred and the mundane and floods the mundane with the sacred. When a gift is given, life becomes extraordinary because God's own gift giving flows through the giver. Isn't that extraordinary? It's true. It's so true. Generosity is about others. It's about other people. How interruptible are you? We've been in this series, A Thousand Acts of Courage. Have you let God interrupt your day? As you've started the day, have you let him interrupt you? Have you been available during the day for him to break in, to change the plan, to ask you to move into a situation? Have you prayed that he would speak to you that day about giving your life away? God has certain assignments for us to accomplish in this life. We read this in Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We followers of Christ are God's masterpieces. The purpose of our new lives in Jesus was to fulfill the unique assignment that God has given to each of us according to his sovereign will. People who live with no sense of God's assignment, people who live with no sense of God's purpose constantly drift from one experience to another. They move from one job to another, one relationship to another, one location to another, one ministry to another, and they are always discontent and they are always searching and they're always on the move and they're always frustrated and they are never at peace. Do you believe with all your heart that God has a unique destiny in mind when he created you and saved you? I absolutely believe this. There are things that only you can do. I can't do them for you. There are things, there are assignments that the Lord has for you every day. Most of the assignments from the Lord are very, very small. We like to think that they're all about these big things that we do. They are not, they are tiny. There is a phone call that the Lord wants you to make. There is a person in the hospital that God wants you to visit. There is a dishwasher that God wants you to empty. I'm not sure about that one. There is a difficult conversation that God wants you to have. There is a relationship that God wants you to reconcile. There is a prayer that God wants you to pray. Would you say that when you wake up in the morning, you have a sense of purpose and you have a sense of identity and you wake up and say, I am called today in every encounter to uniquely impact people in, in, a sphere, in my sphere in a way that nobody else can. Do you see how if you live life like this, it turns your life completely upside down? It changes everything. It's the adventure of faith. Suddenly, every day looks different. No matter what you're doing, when you become others-focused and when you start to be a generous person, it changes everything because you just look at life differently. You start saying, Lord, where are you asking me to partner with you today? Lord, where can I see your fingerprints today? Lord, I want to be a part of that. There are unique things that the Lord has called each one of us to do. And he's calling us to step into them. He's saying, I've got them for you. All you have to do is you have to listen and you have to obey. You have to listen to my voice and you have to obey what I say. And your whole life will be an adventure with the Lord. I'm not saying it's easy. (laughs) That doesn't mean it's easy. That just means it's an incredible adventure. 
because Jesus loves to speak to us. So why don't we stand?